Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Aria Elfenbein. Aria Elfenbein is a physician. He's a cardiologist, and he is a doctorpreneur. He's launching a new company, and their goal is to make ex vivo fish meat for human consumption. You won't want to miss this fascinating discussion about a San Francisco startup legend. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ, joined by Arya Elfenbein. Dr. Elfenbein is a cardiologist, and he is, in fact, a biotech entrepreneur. Dr. Elfenbein, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We were just talking about how good these microphones sound. They sound amazing. Amazing, yeah. These are the Shure, the Shure microphones. Yeah, um, uh, it's still, I'm still getting everything connected here. I don't know what all these knobs and buttons do. I'm working uh, on it. The closer I can sound to Ira Glass, the better. Do your This American Life intro. From Chicago. See, can't do it. <laughs> this American Life, I'm Ira Glass. <laughs> he does it so that the entire... The entire introduction is, is like one word. Yes. He does it well. He does it well. Well, um, you know, uh, I'm glad we were able to sit down. I know our time is going to be cut short in a little bit because you're a busy man. But um, I think we'll put out what we get and then we will go from there. Um, so why don't we start by telling folks a little bit about your background? You know, you and I, of course, we have a mutual friend. That's how we know each other. That's how we've known each other. Um, but you're, you're a doctor. You're a physician scientist. You're card-carrying cardiologist. And you are somebody who is an entrepreneur. You started a startup company. So I wonder if you might might start by the startup company. What is your company? What are you working on? What's your elevator pitch? And then let's get back into, you know, how you came to this unusual or, you know, these days less and less unusual career path. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd start by saying that this is something I never thought uh, I would be doing as a career. Um, and so the company is called Wild Type. Um, and the idea, just like the word wild type, is to create something as it exists in nature. And it really started from a trip um, I made back to Australia, where I grew up. Um, and I was in the, the far north and looking around at a lot of the land that used to be rainforest mm. and um, is now used for cattle farming. Mm. And thought about you know, what the kind of ecological impact is of our, of our food system. And around the same time, I um, was uh, inspired by the work mostly out of Shinji Yamanaka's net lab. Um, he, stem um, cell biologist, right? He mm-hmm. uh, was the one credited for c- 
discovering how to reprogram cells into iPS cells, pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotence, yeah. Um, and how, what was it? It was a couple of mutations, a couple of things he he did, a couple of genes that he, he flipped. Yeah, it was four factors, four, and they're yeah. called the, the Yamanaka factors. And, and that was at Kyoto University in around 2006. And, and I was there for, for grad school for my PhD around the same time. And so it was a very inspiring moment. And, and it made me wonder, with all of the advances in stem cell biology, do we need animals to produce meat? Um, could we just create the exact same thing just outside the animal from their cells? And, um, and I was you know, sort of driving through Australia and thinking these thoughts and, and of course thought I was the first person to, to have this thought <laughs> and then um, you know, went home and uh, worked the Google machine and, <laughs> and realized that actually many people have had this idea. And you know, even Winston Churchill had um, really? opined about this um, in, the, in the 1930s. Really? I didn't know that. About you know, why like, one day we will escape the absurdity of growing an entire bird, an entire chicken, mm -hmm. just, just to eat you know, sort of part of it. And, um, and, and I was really fascinated by, by this idea and realized that another cardiologist, um, Dr. Mark Post, um, with whom I had actually overlapped in the same lab uh, doing research in the early 2000s, he had spent the last few years um, working on this exact same thing and created the world's first hamburger in this way. Mm. Um, I couldn't believe it. And, and the first conference, the uh, first international conference was going to take place in the Netherlands soon after that. And I, and I said, oh, you know, I've, I've never been to the Netherlands and I've got to gotta reconnect with Mark yeah. Post and I don't know why I'm going, but, but I, I just went. I was riveted and it, it really changed everything for me. Um, you know, I was a cardiology fellow at the time and, and people, you know, I said, I'm going to this conference and people said, oh, like, is it the uh, ACC or is it I'm like, no, the people are making meat from cells. <laughs> and um, yeah, and they were like, uh, OK, <laughs> um, right. You know, and, and, and it was such an interesting group of people. There were scientists, there were um, anthropologists, there were venture capitalists. Uh, there were people who were just enthusiasts, like futurists. I mean, it, it was a fascinating group of people. And, um, and I sort of kept this idea with me uh, until I finished training and then moved to San Francisco to work at the Gladstone Institutes at, at UCSF. I was um, working with uh, Dr. Deepak Srivastava. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was making these beating heart tissue little patches and was thinking the same thing. Like, could... You were getting hungry. Could we? <laughs> exactly. I'm yeah. like, this, this looks tasty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, of course not. But you were thinking, can we find a way outside of an animal culture, outside of farm-raised salmon right. to grow fish and yeah, fish meat? Exactly. And so, you know, seafood in particular, I think um, the, the kind of ecologic impact that uh, both overfishing and even fish farming or aquaculture have had. Um, those are just have been profoundly devastating in in, in many ways. Yeah. Uh, but not only that, I think that our our seafood today there's a there's a big problem of traceability. Um, a lot of what we mm -hmm. buy, we don't actually know if it's the same thing. I hear if you like DNA DNA sequence <laughs> it, it's like not even the fish you think it is. Right. There yeah, have been right, yeah. quite a few exposés written about yeah. just that yes. about you know sort of ordering one thing off the menu and all kinds of restaurants in New York or L.A. and finding out that that's, that's actually not what it is. And yeah. part of that problem is, is a, an enormous part of the fish that we 
even catch here goes offshore, often to places like China where it's cheaper to process I the see. fish, and then they come back here. I see. Um, so your elevator pitch is uh, it's it's about a two hundred and fifty floor uh, building. <laughs> <laughs> that's a <laughs> <laughs> that's your elevator. Okay, okay. But, but I would I would say a couple things about you real quick. Okay, so one. Um, you know, you did your undergrad at Brandeis University, if I'm right. right. Um, and then you did your MD-PhD at Dartmouth University. Um, after your MD-PhD, you went to the Fast Track program at Yale, uh, where you did Fast Track and internal medicine. That's where we have our mutual friend. Um, and then you went on and you stayed on for the cardiology fellowship. Um, and then um, there have been some gaps in your training. There's a gap in your graduate school where you spent some time in Japan. Um, I think listeners also have heard you allude to, but you spent some time growing up in Australia many years of your life. Um, and, and I think the other very interesting thing about your journey is in your research portion of your, of your cardiology fellowship, um, that's when you came to San Francisco and you started working at the Gladstone. And so, so you're a cardiologist. I think so. Um, I should say all these things about you. You're a cardiologist, you're a physician scientist. Your company is seeking to make fish outside of actually growing fish and farming fish and catching fish, um, but having the fish meat product and have it taste as rich and, and you'll talk about that, uh, as the real thing. Um, but you're also, you know, every few nights a, uh, a month, you're moonlighting as a cardiologist, you're moonlighting as a, as a critical care doctor um, in the Kaiser Network. So, so you're living the startup dream. Is that accurate to say? Uh, I am. And, and it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a stereotype these days, I think, in, in San Francisco. But yeah. um, I, I will say that it's, it's been an amazing journey. The, you know, the, the sense of teamwork um, in in a startup from from the very beginning, you know, when you start was just me and my co-founder, and you know, mm-hmm. and we had one other person, and then two other people, and yeah, and and it really just feels like being on this little life raft, and and you know, a, we we get a little bit more secure on that life raft, and then then we have like this this little boat, you know, but it's still <laughs> very rocky, uh, you know, waters, and um, I mean, it's a high, I mean, I guess like one of the things that draw people to medicine is that it is a, I hate to say this, but to some degree, it's a risk averse career. Um, you know, people always say to me that, you know, if I wanted to be rich, I would have been an investment banker. I wouldn't have been a doctor. And I was like, well, you're not thinking about that in the right way. The, the best investment banker clearly er- out earns the best doctor by an order of magnitude, but the worst doctor probably out earns the, the worst investment banker. Medicine is a profession where the person, uh, you know, in the 10th percentile, the fifth percentile, they're doing very well on average. It's sort of a safety net. And that encourages a certain type of phenotype, the type of person who always, you know, I'm sure you're this type of person to some degree, gets good grades and is very sort of risk averse. Um, then entrepreneurial work is the opposite, right? I mean, you're playing a high stakes game that it's very possible. I hope it's not the case, but it's very possible that the company doesn't take off. Um, it's very likely. Very fact, likely. Just by statistics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess, I guess, was it, was it different for you? Or were you always sort of somebody with an appetite for risk, as evidenced by the types of things you were studying as a researcher? You know, how how did it fit with your personality and your tolerance of risk? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I, I will just start by saying, even a career in in let's say academic medicine is one that is very risky. You're you're you know just dis- <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, you, I know. You're, yeah. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> your trajectory is is really defined by discoveries that you made. Mm-hmm. Like these aren't milestones that you can just sort of plan out. And and so well with the right graduate student and the right uh, Photoshop. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. No, no, but your point's well taken. Like you can't like you know you can be as great scientist, but you don't stumble across something wonderful. Right. right yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, if we were to ask 
Professor Yamanaka uh, about what it took to discover iPS cells. Yes. Obviously, these are very risky things to to be studying. Yeah. So it's like timing, um, uh, serendipity. um, And and if one were to like, you know, we all know really good scientists who they don't have a Nobel Prize winning discovery in their their, uh, CV. But they're probably just as smart, just as bright, just right. as talented as the person who did. They just happen to not be in the right field at the right moment at the right time. Exactly. Or, you know, their discoveries are just not perceived as mm. as quite as interesting at that moment in time. That's, whereas that's where I'm at in my career. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, so I think yeah. both are, are pretty risky, you know. Um, and uh, But I think for, for me, it just sort of reached a point of conviction where I, I really believed in the ability to to create this, to, to be able to uh, to have cells grow in this way and and for you know a purpose that um, went beyond the biomedical sciences that really influences our, our food system. And once I, I was at that point of conviction, you know, it it just felt, I don't know, it it, it was k- kind of um, it it was still a difficult decision to make to to leave the the university, but it was it was one that that felt right. It's one that I knew that I would regret if I didn't. Really, um, and and that I think was was how uh, I was able to you know to make that decision in the end. I see. So what you're saying is the thing that allowed you to tolerate the risk to take the risk was you felt like you had no real alternative. I felt like. Not that there was no alternative, but that I would probably regret the alternative. I see. Um, and you know, when I when I told Deepak about this, you know, he's my boss, and um, he he started laughing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't start laughing. I, I think you know it was it was certainly a surprise. But he said, you know, the, the small decisions we make um, in life uh, with our brains, and, and the big decisions we make with our hearts. And mm. um, and he said, I, I can see this is something that that you care about, and and this is something that that you should absolutely do. So you're you're telling me a story. I mean, you're motivated by passion. You're motivated by I don't know what that motivation's like. I'm not motivated. I'm, not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm motivated by animus and spite and and <laughs> anger. Those are what motivate me. But you're motivated by passion. That's a much more commendable emotion to be motivated by. Um, okay, that's very interesting. So okay, now I want to. This is this is what I really wanted to know. Um, you know, so so I guess it's fair to say you're a doctorpreneur. That's what they call. It. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, I have not heard that. It's a doctorpreneur. You're a doctorpreneur. Um, in fact, I think it's 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 gaining in popularity. Um, mm. But um, I guess one of the things I was curious about is, okay, so you have this idea. You, I mean, you have this kernel of this idea, which is we want to find a way to grow um, fish uh, in, in sort of a cultured way that doesn't actually create the whole organism, but creates the, the product that we consume. Um, I guess around this time, I mean, Beyond Burger was taking off Impossible Foods with, uh, you know, Pat Brown and, and, and Mike Eisen and such. Um, did you, um, d- did you, you, obviously you're aware of their efforts and, and how did you think about positioning yourself juxtaposed with all these sort of other, you know, big players really? Yeah. I mean, Justin is my co-founder and Justin and I both, you know, sort of believe that there would always be a market for, um, not just a market, but you know, there'd always be an appetite for something that is real meat in a way. You yeah. could have these plant-based alternatives, veggie burgers, as good as they are. And, and I love both Beyond Burger and Possible Burger. I see. But you um, don't, you don't, cons- I see what you're saying. I, you don't consider it, it's not actually cells. It's a, right. it's a plant-based product with a, with a whiff of hemoglobin moiety <laughs> in it, right? Exactly. Some iron-containing moiety that gives you a little 
a little boost on the tongue, but it's not meat. Yeah, and I you see. know the difference when it comes to cells. It, it, this isn't just a sort of you know thing around semantics. It's that cells are programmed to create the same kinds of textures and structures, and um, you know uh, encapsulate fat as adipocytes or um, create the sort of parallel textures of myocytes. This is something that's that's very difficult to replicate when you um, work with plant-based uh, products. Um, mm. And yet for us, growing cells, in a way, this is something that they are born to do. It's, you know, literally in their DNA. Literally, <laughs> I see. I see. So I guess you were, while you were thinking about this endeavor, um, you thought that what, what what's differentiating you from the competition, really, is that... Um, you're going to make a more of a commitment to get this product to be closer to the thing that we've been, you know, killing and trapping. Right. We see this as, as really the next generation of all of these great plant-based alternatives right now, um, which is essentially, and, and you know, I, I think there should always be uh, the availability of um, fish that are fished responsibly by, you know, people who are stewards of our oceans and care about sustainability. I think their, you know, aquaculture should always have a place in, uh, in our food supply as well. But with the population just growing as quickly as it is, um, you know, that demand is just far going to outstrip our ability to, you know, to, to produce anything right. to, um, to sustain it. And the, w without an, a new source of, of meat or, or seafood, um, you know, the, the kinds of scenarios that play out are either only the ultra wealthy have uh, access to, to these types of foods, or we completely destroy the environment in the process of, right. you know, getting every last fish out of the ocean. Right. And um, neither of those sound great. Yeah. And, um, and just to add to that, um, it's been a long time, but in college, I took a class on uh, like marine biology, marine ecosystems. And one of the things that it's been a while since I remember this, but is that um, that we talked about was that many people believe that farm-raised salmon, for instance, is not that bad for the environment. It's farm-raised after all. Uh, but then my understanding is that actually to farm-raise it, they go to a place in the environment that's very valuable and serves a key ecological role, and they destroy it to make said farm in said spot. And so it's actually not so good. Right. I, this was something, to be honest, I, I didn't know I didn't understand, you know, until we started the company, is what aquaculture actually entails. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there are efforts now to, um, to to make it better in some ways, but absolutely these sort of ecological dead zones, what they're called, are um, some of the most common issues as well as, uh, you know, issues of, of parasites and a lot of other... I think that, you know, the, the biggest problem, though, yeah. for aquaculture today is that the overwhelming majority of the food for these fish actually comes from other fish. So it's bycatch, you know, from, oh. from the ocean. So they have to trawl the ocean to feed their farm. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, if you believe that there's a problem with overfishing, then aquaculture actually doesn't solve that because mm -hmm. you are, you know, the, as of today, the food that these fish require are actually just other fish. I see. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, okay, so you have this seed of an idea, this germ of an idea, um, and you do have to some degree, the technical know-how, how to start to think about how to do this. Um, what's the next step in the life of a doctorpreneur? I mean, do you need the <laughs> do you need the funding? Do you need? Um, I mean, you must. I mean, obviously, it's a resource-intensive thing. Um, of so, course. Yeah. So, what do you do when you have? Yeah, you guys have this idea. Yeah, you know, it, it started with a nights and weekends thing, and you know, San Francisco was a unique place back then, um, four years ago, and we started in 2016. Um, in that there were 
Um, they're called incubators, which is, you know, kind of oh, a funny yeah. <laughs> word. I've seen um, Silicon Valley. Right, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where you can rent bench space, lab space by wow. the hour. Really? Um, and that's, that's what we did just kind of with, with our own <laughs> non savings. Um, and, uh, it was, it was just sort of this, this hobby and side project. But once we realized that, you know, there was only so far we were going to be, be able to get that way. Um, we did go out and seek funding and, and we, we sought funding from, um, the NSF, um, which was not successful. Um, and then also from venture capital, um, which, uh, was successful mm. for us. Um, and, uh, you know, th there are certainly other sources of funding. Um, and these are all ones that, that we had considered at the time. Um, you can imagine for a technology like this, that has a very long lead time. Yes, um, very long, yeah. And is very capital intensive uh, up front to just, you know, what the R&D, like, you know, a, a salmon cell line doesn't, like, didn't exist in a 3D environment um, when when we started. Um, really? There were no salmon cell lines? There were salmon cell lines from uh, the 1960s and 1970s, um, actually. still salmon. And they were grown in 20% fetal bovine serum, oh, which is kind of a strange idea, you know, when you think about it as a food, right? Yeah, you're growing, you're using sort of <laughs> the blood of unborn cows to grow fish cells. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you can imagine what some of the, you know, R&D milestones we had to achieve to, to create something more in the way that we think about for, for food. So um, tell me about that. So, so you want to grow um, salmon cells. What's, what are you growing them in? What broth? Yeah, so the same nutrients you would find. Um, so you, yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, that involves, uh, obviously, things like amino acids to make proteins and then, you know, carbon sources for um, energy like glucose um, or, you know, other sugars, um, certainly fats, and then some growth factors that, um, that the salmon cells would, would produce uh, ordinarily. Um, but the expense of that is one that is, you know, typically cost prohibitive. If we had made an entire kilo... Um, at the very beginning, when we first yes, you know, started, first generation technology it probably would have been about five hundred thousand dollars a kilo. Oh my like, god, yeah. um, that's a pricey that, night at the sushi restaurant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I've been to some expensive sushi restaurants, but not that close. Not, not like yeah, that. Not like that. Yeah. Um, I see. And so, you know, part of the reason was this was an in a inefficient system yes. um, for growing the cells. Another one is we were using pharmaceutical grade reagents, not food grade reagents. I see. I see. Um, That's a higher grade. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and th there just wasn't a, a great you know, system in, in place at the time to, to create um, food in that way. And that's, th that's still, you know, uh, something that all of the companies in our space are, um, are really struggling with. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. When cells grow in culture, and I, it's been a long time, but I did do a few weeks of misguided work in cell culture. <laughs> um, my understanding is that it, like uh, uh, normal cells have contact inhibition. So when you culture them at a certain amount, they're just going to stop growing when they hit walls, when they hit barriers. Uh, cancer cells, of course, notorious for sometimes they, they have inhibited contact in inhibition. Do you have to inhibit contact inhibition in your in your cell lines? Yeah, so there, there are a couple ways to do that. One is to, you know, select for cells that don't exhibit, um, ex exhibit mm -hmm. that and, you know, in, in some ways have sort of changed their okay. um, genetic expression profile to, um, to not require contact inhibition. Um, but, you know, in the case of something like an iPS cell, going back to that, these cells are, are remarkable, not just in the fact that they can become any cell in the body, but also because they double faster than pretty much any cell in the body. Their, their doubling see. time is, is so fast. Um, 
And so these are the kinds of things that that you know we we look for when when we um, sort of profile or genetically profile the the different cell lines that uh, that we've developed. It's very interesting. I want to come back to how you're doing what you're doing, but I want to just take a quick departure. I wonder about you know I see these people. There are a lot of them. They like um, they don't seem to like science apparently. There's <laughs> a few more. <laughs> you may know of such people. Um, I do I don't know? They say they say things like this mRNA vaccine and blah, 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 it's going to change your genome, and obviously they don't know what mRNA is. I, unless I've grown reverse transcriptase, I, I'm probably safe. Uh, and they also say things like any GMO right. is, yeah, I hear that. I hear this, that you don't want GMO food. I was like, well, you don't want food that's able to grow? Okay, fine. What do you, what right. do you want to eat then? All right, well, fine, okay. You, or whatever, they don't want it, like, you don't want to use genetic engineering to do it. You'd rather just breed it for a few hundred years to get what you want. Okay, whatever. I mean, they're this kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question to you is whether or not we are sympathetic to the view or not sympathetic to the view, we must acknowledge that these people exist. So what is, like, um, the acceptability of the public? Like, what do, what, when you, like if you told the average Joe, I'm going to grow the salmon in this thing, are they going to, I don't know what, I, you must have studied this in market study. Like, yeah, what do they think? Yeah, th th there actually have been a lot of studies about okay. this. And, and you know, first of all, um, it's obviously a strange idea for anyone. It's, a, you know, the first time they hear it because, you know, you're used to your meat or seafood. Um, Fighting. Used to the, <laughs> right, you're used to the idea that <laughs> yeah. this this came from a, a living animal. Yeah. Um, that's that's the first thing. Often it does get combined with some, you know, sort of vague idea of genetic modification um, which is a very you know fraught term. Obviously, I think that today it's come to mean something that is completely different from what gave it a bad reputation um, many years ago. Uh, you know, in the days of Monsanto and, and so forth. I and, see. Um, and obviously, you know, creating this for the purpose of food has nothing to do with uh, developing uh, you know resistant crops and you know um, basically strong arming monopolies and yeah, so right, forth. Right, and, right, right. and 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 they're very different things. Um, but still, in places like Europe, um, to introduce a product like this with any sort of directed genetic modification would just not be possible. Really, um, they don't like it's it. Just right. Um, today in the U.S., uh, you know, genetic like when when things are uh, declared as non-GMO, it's it's still kind of a self-declaration. Um, but it's one that we recognize uh, would just be another barrier, you know, up front to uh, to consumer acceptance. And so it's it's one that you know our cell lines are are currently non-GM. I mean, we've looked at GM and non-GM approaches. To 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 your point, there you know there's such similarity between those. I mean, we've been breeding everything that we consume right. over the course exactly. of you know yes. centuries right. and. Uh, um, and and that on its own is some amount of like just look at the banana. Yes, or, it's genetic engineering um, that's right. just done rather bluntly and not as thoughtfully. Exactly. Yeah. I I often you know will say like have have you ever tried one of those um those seedless watermelons? <laughs> have you have you tried? Yeah. And people are like yeah of course. What do you mean? Of course. Who I was like seed? Well, yeah. how. How did that happen? You know, like <laughs> yeah, this, this, the seedless watermelon. Clearly, like that's that's not genetically normal, or else how would it you know, reproduce? reproduce <laughs> right? Like, and yeah. uh, you know, it's things like yeah. this that are we we've come to accept. Yes. Why? You know, and 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 um, 
There, there are all kinds of examples like this, but um, I always find it. I mean, I guess I just get struck where I mean, I, I don't want to uh, uh, take too. I, I guess I'd, I'd say no matter where you fall, one of the things I'm interested in is consistency. And when I see things every day in the store that people happily put in their mouths exactly. that don't even decay, <laughs> I mean, things right. that you like left out on your counter, and four years later you return and it's in the exact same form. The, the bugs and the bacteria won't even eat this shit, and you're gonna eat it, <laughs> and then that they're gonna put in their mouth, but then they're going to give you a hard time about like, I don't know, some wheat that may have some thing in it that helps right, you avoid right. frost, you know? I'm like, all right, well. And so, I mean, I think that to what you alluded to in terms of like, for example, the, the new coronavirus vaccines, the, mm, the, the yes. mRNA ones, yes. um, where people, um, you know, understandably want it, want to learn more about it, want to, you know, see that uh, it is, is safe. That's, that's completely reasonable. But these are things that, um, first of all, you know, me receiving my mRNA vaccine was actually a pretty emotional experience. Um, mRNA in this way was uh, was exactly what I was working on at Gladstone and UCSF. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, it was it was injections in the, in the heart, but um, it was it was it was really amazing. But for to me. be clear, that's not how you got your vaccine. You didn't get it all the way. Right. I, I did not get it in the heart. <laughs> I, I got heart. it in my arm. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good, good, good. Um, but you know, having made this with, with yes. my own hands and and like understanding everything that, that that's that goes into this, like I, I I obviously felt such a you know not just a level of confidence in in its safety, but but more was just amazed that that it was so effective and was able to to do so so much good in such a short amount of time, and and you know people have have asked. Um, these very good questions like can it affect your uh, your own dna and and that's that's a very simple one to address like mrna is not able to um doesn't even go into the nucleus it doesn't interact with your dna how dare you um the, <laughs> and you know and and this is something that sort of it, and, and then let me ask one yeah. question. like the, the reason my understanding is like like why do they even pursue mrna and the answer is you can do it very very quickly from the moment you know sequence you right. can already boom you're already there can make your mrna and and you can and you can go from there you need a way to get it to the cells and trends exactly the, the you know the, the older way of making <laughs> vaccines was to was to have a non-infectious component um the protein the fully formed protein that often had to be folded in the right way yeah. or a sort of weakened version of the virus and itself. you need to make sure to like weaken it enough that it can't yeah, uh, kill you know you. kill it but but if you weaken it too much then uh, often it can completely degrade or be misfolded and, and your body won't even recognize it as foreign and, and, so, and i've been reading about that and my understanding is that it was like really a lot of trial and literal artistry it wasn't even science exactly. it was like somebody just eyeballing this embryo cells and like that looks like the right amount of yeah. gas cell death. <laughs> that, that's the good shit I got it right here. Yeah, it was really like just total like yeah. a baker in the kitchen. Right. Yeah. But, you know, pretty soon after yeah. the, the novel coronavirus, uh, you know, was recognized to, um, to to be wreaking havoc internationally, we were able to get the sequence, I think it was as early as March. And we knew the spike protein was one of the most antigenic aspects of it. And from that point, you know, it was it was very easy to just create that uh, sequence and and have the body recognize it as foreign and and you know uh, in, incite the body to to then develop antibodies to, toward it. And then the way the vaccine works, of course, is that the the mRNA gets taken up by presumably your muscle cells, your skeletal muscle cells, but maybe whatever cells are in that vicinity. Right. Those cells express spike protein; they get killed off. Um, and then the body learns to kill off spike protein. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that RNA just, you know, over time just degrades and it's gone. So you say. <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen. So I've seen. That's your story. Okay. All right. Very interesting. So, so, um, 
Um, okay, cool. So uh, let's go back to your company. So your first few years, you get you're been, you're working at these rent a lab bench, like a <laughs> right. U-Haul. You're renting a lab bench only in this city, um, <laughs> and and you're you're trying to get this to go. Um, how are you? Who are the first venture capitalists that you're deceiving? I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean persuading of your of your venture. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the the theme uh, was certainly <clears throat> investors who understood the the long term vision I see. and you know were comfortable enough with with that amount of uh, of risk from such an early stage. And we're not looking to just quickly flip a company because this is this is not the the kind of company that um, that that can can really work that way. I see. Um, and it, it took a lot of just sort of explaining what the vision is, a lot of what you know my my own fears were around whether this would scale, whether you know costs would um, would, would come, and just being very honest about those things, and then just describing what what our vision was to to address all of those. And 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 it was really that those kinds of conversations that that you know led to investors who were really the most aligned with what we were doing. Um, who didn't just see the the market size for all of food and you know just kind of wanted to uh, quickly cash out, um, but uh, that's that's why you know it's it's actually I feel very lucky for for the investors we, we've had along the way. I see. And now four years later, what are your resources and where are you? Yeah, we we moved into our own space. We're, we're a team wow. of twenty people. Twenty people? Um, I didn't know that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, um, two of which are non scientists. So we have a, a team of tissue engineers. We have a, um, a team of cell biologists. We have a team of um, <clears throat> media and and process development scientists and uh, food scientists. Wow! And you know, just before we started talking, you were on a phone call when this ends, you're going to have to go to a meeting. So it's a time-consuming thing. I mean, this is what you were trying to tell me. Startup life is, uh, it's pretty time-consuming. It's time-consuming. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, I mean, tell us about that a little bit. I mean, uh, obviously, there's, the, there's the, the young medical student at home listening to this who says, this is the way to get rich quick. Uh, <laughs> you would say that that's not, that's, not the, uh, that's not the case. Maybe a different kind of start. Maybe okay. something like software. I think yes, that, okay. you know, starting a cellular agriculture company is... <laughs> Not a good way to get rich quick. <laughs> I say, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but I want to get a sense of like, I mean, what is the work week like? Um, what is your week like? And then and then tell us about like, you know, we'll find the next thing I want to talk about is how you stay clinically relevant. But I guess like, I mean, yeah, what is your, walk me through like a week in your life. Does it have normal business hours? Are you sort of always tied to this? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that the um, the blur between... <laughs> Work and life um, is more blurred yeah. uh, mm -hmm. in the early stages of of a startup, uh, but it's something that I've I've enjoyed um, mostly because I love the people um, we you know I work with, and uh, there, but there are so many different aspects to to any day. I mean, one moment um, I'm on this wonderful podcast here, <laughs> <laughs> um, the highlight then, of the week, obviously, uh, for sure, the highlight of yeah. my week. <laughs> Next, you know, we're preparing for for board meetings or planning scientific experiments, or mm -hmm. you know, I still um, spend time in the lab and will you know passage cells. And you know, for me, it's an, it's an important thing to to still be 
Uh, what are you doing that for? Close to, I mean, because I, I think it's an important thing to be, to be close to the data and to sort of like understand how these cells are growing and and what it is that um, change. And it also gives me an excuse to try some of the crazier ideas. Um, You're like and, Henry Ford going to the assembly line one day, just <laughs> building one himself, huh? Well, not, not quite Henry. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that. Yeah. No. I, 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 I see. You. Yeah, I mean, uh, but but I, I also think it, it just sort of helps me understand where where we are as a mm-hmm. company as well, and so you know, and, and not be too removed from um, from what what the experiments are. Um, so it's all of those things. You know, it's talking to investors. It's you know, just sort of you know, planning vision. Think there's some fundraising aspects to it. It's, it's all of these things, and there are things that like. Um, would it be fair to say that? Um, there, there, are, there are a few things you're thinking about, like, I hope I get, and you could get a phone call on Monday and it could be the kind of news you're looking for. I hope I get um, somebody who works in your company could come tell you some news on Wednesday. There, there are a lot of those kind of hope for moments. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that just every day is just a completely different thing. And, you know, there's a lot of constantly putting out fires, which, yeah. which is exciting on its own. Um, but uh, just the fact that every single day is quite different. And if I'm doing the same thing, you know, even a year from now yeah. that I'm doing that, then then there's probably something that I'm doing wrong uh, oh, about see. it. It's, it's not... It's not a very, you know, it's it's not a job that should be static at this stage. It's, at least. it's very, it's, I see, I see. Yeah. Um, Interesting, because I mean, obviously, like in the career of an academic, you have these hope for moments. But I have noticed, and I've talked to some very senior people, that the further you get out, the less you have, mm. because you're like, eh, it could go this way, or if not, I don't really care. <laughs> and, and that's a strange feeling. I mean, indifference is a strange feeling. Yeah. When previously, something would really be a great boost or a great uh, setback. Now, mm. it's greeted with indifference. Um, okay, now let's talk about the clinical side. So you are a cardiologist. Yeah. So you know about aspirin, statin, beta blocker, ACE. <laughs> the, I do. <laughs> those medicines, I feel like, um, I always joke with my cardiology friends, um, which is like, you know, like oncology, you know, like we have like a couple hundred drugs. Right. And you guys, aspirin, statin, beta blocker, ACE. Yeah. And then Entresto. <laughs> you got your Entresto and then right. you got your SGLT2 inhibitor and then you got some things that inhibit platelets and you guys run these like... 800,000 person trial to find a slight difference in that in, in the platelet inhibitory right, strategy. Right. <laughs> okay, anyway, I just tease. Um, <laughs> but, you're, but you are a card-carrying cardiologist. And during all this, um, you have not given that up. I mean, you're still a cardiologist. You're still um, in KP in Kaiser Permanente San Francisco a few, a few uh, days a month. Um, I wonder if you might talk about what that's like to to keep a foot in the clinical arena. Yeah, I mean, it it's always felt like a privilege to be part of patients' lives in that mm-hmm. in that way, and um, it's something that I, I haven't wanted to to let go of for for that reason. I think in many ways I probably enjoy medicine more now because it's you know something that I I don't get to do uh, as much. And so, you know, I'll put on my scrubs and go to the ICU and it's like, okay, we're, we're here tonight. We're, yeah. we're making this happen. This, yeah. this is great. And, and I, I, I love feeling that, that energy that maybe I, I wouldn't if, if it were seven days a week um, at this point. Um, but I think it certainly is more of a challenge to stay clinically relevant as, as you're alluding to. Um, this is, you know, a whole different part of my brain to, yeah. to kind of, uh, and, and I think the thing that, that drives that and the ability that I am able to sort of 
keep up to, you know, to the extent that I can is really just the curiosity of like, you know, just still being curious about what is, what does this trial say? Like what, what did, you know, right, right. what's, what's going on in the world of cardiology yes. these days? Um, and, and it's probably because it feels like a special thing to, to still be part of that world, um, more than, more than anything else. That's very interesting. And, um, yeah, I can, I mean, I can totally see that. And I can also see, I wonder if you think about this, that, um, these two things you do, they have very different horizons on which the outcome is related to the action. Mm -hmm. uh, critical care medicine is perhaps the shortest distance between right. you doing something and you seeing at least the surrogate of that action. Mm -hmm. Turn up presser, turn down presser, fix aortic balloon pump from inflating <laughs> in the wrong moment. <laughs> you, right, you know right. what I'm about to say. Yeah, I, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, so here's what I'm going to say. Uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course I think I think people tell me if I'm wrong. It's been a long time since I did this, but the 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 principle of the intraaortic balloon pump is that when the heart is contracting during systole, it deflates, creating a negative pressure in the aorta that allows blood to be pulled out of the left ventricle. When the heart is in diastole and the coronary arteries are being perfused, it mm -hmm. inflates, which actually has a retrograde flow into the coronary arteries and gives the coronary arteries blood. Right. However, in actual practice, every so often somebody has not been very attentive to the intraaortic balloon pump and it is actually inflating in systole <laughs> and contracting in diastole is that possible it's possible yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's just leave it at that let's just leave it at that yeah and i've seen that and so and so you know when i have when i finally saw the, the results of the randomized control trials of iabp in um uh, i guess in 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 high risk um uh three vessel uh stenting complex mm -hmm. stenting and in um in chalk and and some of those results are not as positive as people thought i thought that you know one of the possibilities is it wasn't gated right but anyway that's uh, a joke um so okay <laughs> but but my point is okay so in the icu you're doing things and you're seeing the result of that every hour by hour minute by minute and then on the other side of your life you're doing things and you may not potentially see the result of that for 20 30 years not let's say not say 20 years but maybe 5 years 10 years yeah um, you know, I think it's very similar to what medical school and grad school, the difference there mm. where I, I didn't know when I was going to graduate from, from a PhD, <laughs> just, you know, felt yeah. like it was yeah. just going to interminable be the, the rest of my, like I was just going to die a, a grad student, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like probably, oh, yeah. um, as opposed to, to medical school where, you know, you show up and you study and, you know, this rotation ends on this date and, and so forth. And you, you know what the, the timeline should look like. And um, I don't know. I've, I guess I've been comfortable with with both of saying. those. You've, you've sort of long had things. those two kind of risk reward balances in your life. Yeah, I, I think they they do balance each other out. You know, there there is something more the sort of instant. You know, like understanding, like seeing um, the results of your actions, and then um, and then the the opposite extreme of like hopefully seeing that in in ten or twenty years. Yeah. I guess, I mean, it's interesting when you say that, um, because, um, I wonder in my case personally, if I, if, if some of that long horizon is just something that I don't like because, um, both, you know, obviously I, I, I did not do a PhD particularly in the, in the laboratory sciences. And I, if you made me do one, I don't know if I'd survive. Um, uh, and I obviously do a fair amount of clinical medicine and probably even more in recent right. when I had my old job. Um, and then, uh, and then the research I do is always very, um, you know, it, it, it can't, it's not just, 
it, compared to lab work, it's short time horizons. Like mm -hmm. you have an idea and you'll get data back in a month, you know, and uh, you'll have the paper done within five months or something like that. Um, and, and, and there's something to that. I mean, that's, there's like, I, you know, you like that kind of time span. I, the longest time horizon projects we did were some of these reversal projects where it took a year or two years. Um, and that felt like an eternity, but in the lab, you know, <laughs> yeah. people do 10 years easy. Yeah. I, th I think it becomes most difficult when, you know, people are working for, you know, four, five, six years for, for one paper, you know, and at the end it's sort of this, it's one, like everything, it's all the eggs in one basket. Yeah. And, and, and then it goes into PNAS and... <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with the oh, come on. <laughs> no, no, ex no, 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 exactly. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, no but I, I, I think, no, it's an interesting point. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe you should try being a little more comfortable with those uh, long-term risk yeah. horizons. Oh, I don't know about me. Um, okay. You got to go in a minute. La last question before we'll pick this up some other day. And actually, maybe the thing I actually wanted to talk to you about, we didn't even get to talk about, but oh. I, I, well, that's for future episodes. This will introduce my audience to you. Thank you. And I'm sure they're going to like it because um, the, the show, what people say, this the number one thing the show is missing is humor. And that's, oh. why, that's why you're here to supply. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have jokes. <laughs> yeah, you got jokes. Yeah. We, we'll just stand up next time. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, la the last thing I'll ask you before we'll pick up another day is, um, I don't know. I guess, what is your advice to the young person out there? I mean, I, I don't know. Um, you must get young people coming to you and asking you advice. And I guess I can imagine, maybe I'll just pick somebody. This is somebody who went to college like you. Um, smart kid. Um, I heard rumors. I heard you went to college pretty young. Um, uh, but, you know, smart kid, young person. Um, they don't know exactly what they want to do in life. You know, they feel like they want to make a difference. They want to be on this, this sort of intersection of... I don't know, science and medicine, you know, sort of a lot of the feelings that I think, you know, you and I must have had. Um, um, they're debating physician scientist path. They're debating traditional MD path. They're debating just kind of laboratory work. Maybe they're debating just going to work for a company. Um, they're debating being an entrepreneur, being a clinician, you know, all the sorts of things that you've kind of exposed yourself to over the years. I guess, how would you advise them to figure out what's right for them? Um, what have you, what do you wish you knew when you were, when you were that young kid who started at Dartmouth? Uh, a lot of things. I, <laughs> I wish I could uh, have learned from my mistakes okay. back then. Um, but but I'd say that the one thing is, you know, people often say, you know, follow your dreams, follow your heart, things like that. And um, for for me, that that's been part of it. But I think the probably in my mind, um, it's been more follow the things that I feel that I can persevere with for the longest. Um, because often it's, you know, inspiration will, will come and go for a particular endeavor. And yet if it's something that you just believe in, you have some conviction around, um, that, that's something that will get you through the, the, the more difficult parts. I think that, you know, following dreams and, and what you, you know, like hope for, um, that's something that can, can certainly change with time. But, but if it's, if it's something that you feel, you know, in, in my case, the sort of, you know, I spent 10 years doing the MD-PhD. <laughs> that was something I, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a lot of persevering there. Yeah, um, you, you did it. You know, deciding mm -hmm. to, um, to to leave um, Deepak's lab and, and start Wild Type. That's, that's something that, you know, just follow the things that you feel good about committing to mm -hmm. and, and, you know, for, for the long term. And if they work out, then great. And if they don't, I think they're, you know, that's when you don't have regrets because you, you gave it everything. That's so well put. Uh, Arya, it's a pleasure to talk to you. 
Uh, I'll let you go to your meeting and uh, we'll pick this up some other time. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.